friends, it's Tuesday. That means it's Doable Discipleship Day. How's it going? It's good to be with you. This is Doable Discipleship, a Saddleback Church podcast designed to help you deepen your faith, or um, as Abel would say, the show that helps you grow. He would not say that. Uh, guys, we are in Genesis chapter four today. We've been in this series on This Is Our Story Genesis, um, which is a small group study that we have been sharing the audio recording of it with you here going through Genesis 1, 2, 3, and now we're at Genesis 4, where we get introduced to some little rapscallions that you know named Cain and Abel, and um, we're going to dive into that story today to finish off this study to see what does this chapter teach us about God, about ourselves, uh, man, and about the world. And again, if you have listened to this whole thing, and yet you have not been doing this small group study with it, you are missing out. You're only getting a portion of the goodness. So it's never too late to tell your group, hey, I, I listened to this thing called This Is Our Story. I think we should do this as our small group and go to saddleback.com slash watch and find it there. Or if you are getting, if you are like enthused now and say, I really got to make a group or join a group so that we can do this study, saddleback.com slash small groups will get you all taken care of. So let's join this concluding chapter in this series and dive into the world of Cain and Abel with Genesis chapter. fallout of rebellion against God is becoming more and more of reality. Adam and Eve, cast out from the garden, have to make their way in a world that is far less hospitable, far less secure. Still, with the help and presence of God, these two exiles eke out a living and eventually have two sons. While Adam and Eve may have hoped that their rebellious ways were left back in the garden, the corrupted human heart was still beating in them and in their sons. In chapter 4, we have a study of parallels. Will we go the way of Cain, or will we go the way of Seth? Will we let sin rule over us, or will we rule over sin? Like a choose-your-own-adventure game, we have two options. Will we build our own kingdoms, or will we take up our birthright and be a part of building for God's kingdom? Two ways. Both have an impact, but one will fade away, and the other will last for eternity. you've gotten a chance to read Genesis chapter 4, and if not, before you continue on, pause this video, read it together as a group. Otherwise, let's dive into chapter 4 and hear what God wants to say to us as we begin to immerse ourselves in his story. In chapter 3, we saw the fall of Adam and Eve as they got banished from the garden, banished from the very place they were given to work and watch over. But we also saw God double down on his commitment to them and his creation. Though there were consequences, God had already initiated his plan for redemption. Now here in chapter 4, we see what life has become. In a sense, chapter 4 is pretty much where we are now. This is our story, right? We run and scurry through our lives, building, surviving, getting by, experiencing defeat, finding hope. 
In this hurried, complex world, some decide to go their own way, like Cain. And others, like the line of Seth, call on the name of the Lord. And some days, let's be honest, we can feel like we're bouncing back and forth with each decision we make. Now, the beginning of this chapter opens up with birth of Cain and Abel, the first humans born on the earth. They grow up. One is a farmer and the other is a shepherd of sorts. The Bible tells us that Cain, the farmer, brought a portion of his crops as an offering to God. Great. Seems good to me. However, it continues on to tell us that Abel, the shepherd and younger brother, also brought an offering. And, and God liked Abel's and didn't particularly like Cain's. And this deeply bothered Cain. Well, God takes notice of this and asks Cain in verses 6 and 7, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Right away, we see God asking more questions. Have you noticed that God likes questions? It's amazing that God opens up a dialogue. He notices Cain's response, uh, and, and he gets involved. He didn't owe that to Cain. He doesn't even scold him. He just invites him into a conversation. There's something vitally important here that we would do well to remember, is that we serve a conversational and dynamic God. We aren't meant to talk at God, but to talk with God. And God talks with, with us. Think about that for a second. We get to have conversations with God. And here in chapter four, we see that God initiates them. Have you ever sensed God wanting to talk with you? Well, God be begins a conversation here with Cain. And right here, God is giving Cain some direction, some warning, an option for a do-over. In other words, he tells Cain, let's go ahead and try that again. Do what's right. Not get out of my sight, but let's give that another shot. God is indeed slow to anger and full of grace. Now, let's personalize this a bit. What has God asked you? Where's God tapped you on the shoulder and said, let's talk about this. Let's go back and, and do that again. I'd be willing to bet that there are a few relationships or situations that God is asking us to go back and make right. Now, we also see in this response that God has opinions, right? God is dynamic and emotional. He's not just a rock. Yes, I did say that. God has emotions and opinions, in fact, we have emotions and opinions because God does. Did you notice in the verses before that God liked Abel's offering and didn't like Cain's? Why is that? Well, we don't fully know. It likely has to do with Cain's attitude behind the offering, but whatever the case, Abel's offering is more pleasing than Cain's. Now, are you okay to let God have opinions? If this seems unfair to you, for God to make up his own mind on issues, you may want to check who you have on God's throne in your mind, him or, or you. Now, God has opinions. And what we do know is that 
He doesn't particularly care about the offerings we give. What he really cares about is our attitude behind them, our hearts. This was likely the issue for Cain, as we'll see later on. Often our offerings reveal the condition of our hearts, which is what God essentially cares about. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, God didn't want just to throw something in the plate type of offering from Cain. What he's looking for was a sacrificial offering like, like Abel's. Remember, Abel brought his firstborn of the flock. God desired more for Cain. He desired a personal, intimate relationship with him, not just some ritualistic practice. So what about me? Well, I need to be thinking through where I may be putting ritual before relationship with God. And then I need to refresh on the why behind my practices, right? Am I practicing religious rituals outside of a relationship with God, right? Am I just going through the motions and missing out on a dynamic relationship with my creator? What is my attitude towards worship, right? Is it just songs or is it all of life? What are my motivations for being with God? Now, whatever they may be, it's important for me to remember that God speaks with me. He has opinions, and most importantly, he desires for me to be close to him above all else. Then, oh man, things go totally haywire. I wish Cain would have just stopped. He would have just listened to God and would have changed his path. But we know what happens, right? No spoilers here. Anger engulfs Cain, and this anger results in the firstborn human killing the secondborn human. Talk about a fail, right? Life is just snuffed out when it is just beginning. And yet, in spite of it all, God shows love over and over again to this person that deserves death. See, God's love is patient and long-suffering. Now, long-suffering is an old word, but it captures this idea really well. God's love to Cain and to us suffers for long stretches of our failures. Right? His love is a committed love with a thick commitment that doesn't bend or break under failure. Basically, his love endures like a marathon runner in the rain, or a mom of toddlers, right? It just puts up with a lot. Let me explain. First, like we covered, God warns Cain about his anger and the result of doing wrong. This alone is an extremely gracious thing to do. Look, if God is giving you a warning, it's because he loves you. He yearns for you to change your path. But it gets even better. After the murder of his brother, God confronts Cain again with a question. He says, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, Cain replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Quick interruption. Yes, Cain. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And let's be honest. Can't you just hear the bratty tone in Cain's voice when he says this to God? Ah, then he lays out the consequences of Cain's decisions. God says, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. When you work the ground, 
It will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now this is an extremely gracious ruling from God. Cain took a life, even when warned to be careful. What he deserves, what is fair, is for Cain to lose his own. Instead, the very ground that holds the blood of his brother, a proof of his death, will no longer offer a stable life to Cain. This is not a death sentence for Cain. This is, at worst, exile and difficulty. Now, Cain could have apologized here. He could have stopped and said, what have I done? Father, forgive me. He even could have thanked God for not ending his life right then and there. No, in fact, Cain never apologizes. Instead, he talks back to God and complains about the consequences of his own decisions. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Look, if I was God right here, I'd laugh, I'd exile this guy and be done with it. He's already getting off with a merciful judgment. But thankfully, God is God. And here we see the final judgment against an unapologetic, self-focused, complaining Cain. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. What a gracious and loving God we serve. That even in his stubborn sin, God still chooses to love Cain and even protect him. What do we do with this grace? What do I do about this? Well, in God's warnings, God's questions, even God's judgments to me, I need to look and see his love beneath it all. God's love is indeed patient and long-suffering. And as long as we are alive, his grace abounds. This love sustains us, it protects us, and it corrects us. Now let's see how the world also plays into the equation. As we'll see, the world isn't as loving as God. Let's come back to verses 6 and 7 for a minute. In verse 6, God says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This passage shows us that sin ensnares, but God embraces. Interesting. There's something important here to understand about the world we live in. We know that sin has corrupted the world and everything in it, but like rust, it's not passive. Sin is actively seeking to destroy. Now, I know this is scary to think about, but it's a reality that we live with. God told Cain that sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Think about that word picture. It makes me think about a lion stalking its prey, crouched, concealed, ready. This is the nature of sin in our world today. What an interesting way to describe it. We typically think about sin as something inside of us, just that bad thing we did, and it is that, but God reveals to us another side of sin that is easy to miss. Sin is just as much outside of us at work in this world as it is inside of us. Sin is an outside force that is active and predatory, a force that is contrary to the work of God, an anti-God campaign in, the, in this world led by the evil one. 
Think about it. A quick scroll through social media will show us that sin is pervasive. It exists in, all, in us and all around us, seeking to tear apart the good, creative, order-bringing work that God is doing. And it exists in the larger systems of the world. Paul says that our real struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Why would he say this? Because sin is not just my personal mistake. Sin is a force that is behind the corruption, injustice, and violence in our world. The scary thing is, when we sin personally, we are adding to that anti-God work in this world. How is sin active in the world, you ask? Think about when countries go to war. It's rarely about a personal slight. At the root of it is usually a deep desire for power and economic gain. Where does this desire come from? It comes from a world that has been corrupted by sin. A world that says the only way to win is by force and economic advantage. A world that says you advance by keeping others down. It's pervasive and desires to rule over us. It's not often that we think about sin like this, but we would do well to understand that sin can be outside of our control and beyond us. This is how sin ensnares us. Like Cain, we can choose to give ourselves over to the sin that awaits us. Thankfully, there is much more to the story. Now, what I love about this is that even in the midst of a sinful world, we see a very different story with the way God operates. Notice that God says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Then immediately after he says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Huh. The way it's set up, you would expect God to say, but if you don't do what is right, you will not be accepted. But that's not what he says. He says sin is crouching at your door. He never says Cain will not be accepted. Acceptance comes through God's righteousness that he gives us, not our performance. What he does say is that Cain's decisions will result in sin ruling over him. He's essentially saying that if we don't do what is right, not only will we have sin, sin will have us. We'll be taking sides against God and his work in the world. In this interaction, we see God embracing and desiring to correct Cain so he doesn't fall into sin's hands. This is a pattern with God. God preemptively moves to protect us. And it's in our decisions that we choose to live in God's hands or sin's hands. So yes, sin is crouching ready to ensnare, but God is out ahead of it ready to embrace. So what does this mean for me? What do I do with this realization that sin is both inside of me and at work in the world around me? I need to pray and ask God to reveal where sin is at work in my life so I can know where I may fall into sin's hands instead of God's. So you see, the decision is up to us. Yes, there are outside factors in the world that influence our actions, but they don't have the final say. Jesus showed us a truer and better way. We can, we can and do rule over sin in the world and in ourselves. This is possible because of the Spirit's power within us. However, there are a few things to understand about ourselves first. The chapter breaks and opens up in verse 17 the same way it opened in the beginning. Verse 17 says, Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son, Enoch. You see, even in Cain, there is still a desire to build a kingdom. Remember how God blessed Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply? The part where we are wired by God to take the raw potential around us and rearrange it in a way that it becomes fruitful and useful. Well, this is what's going on here. Cain is on the outs. He's described as a restless wanderer. However, he still carries the image of God. And because of this, he still has a desire to build, order, name, and create, to make things that are fruitful and useful. It is essential to his humanity like it is ours. We are wired by God to do this. But like most things, sin has corrupted this good desire. And what happens is what was meant for building God's world, his kingdom, ends up being used to build our own. 
Verses 16 and 17 say, Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. Just like his parents, Adam and Eve, he's building and creating. And get this, it works. The project continues. So it comes down to this. We will plan. We will build. We will execute. Whether we are following Jesus' ways or not, it is simply innate to who we are. It is a part of a being made up in the image of God. Point being, whatever we set our hands to, it is contributing to and building something. So if this will happen naturally, the question now becomes, what and for who will we build? This is the question that we all have to answer. This doesn't mean that we all have to go and start churches. This could look like committing to serving the marginalized in your community as opposed to using that time to make a little extra cash on the side. It could look like committing to spending more intentional time with your children as opposed to using that time to watch another episode of your favorite show. It's these little decisions that turn the tide of our lives and families and communities. All of these decisions compound on each other and begin to show what God's kingdom is like. In other words, it's committing to the things that matter, to the things that God cares about, to the things that will stand for eternity. For me, it means taking my time to dream up a few ways I would like to help build for God's kingdom in my family, at work, and in my community. It's all about our choices and the behavior that comes from our choices, which leads to our next point. Will sin rule over us or will we rule over sin? In God and Cain's conversation, God says in verses 6 and 7, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Let's focus on the end of this statement, the part where God instructs Cain to rule over sin. If the word rule is starting to evoke a feeling in you by now, that's good. We know we have been cre- we've been created to rule with God. But with the introduction of sin, part of our ruling is ruling over sin. Ruling wasn't supposed to include this, but here we are. We spoke earlier about sin in the world, but let's switch our focus to ourselves for this section. We know that sin is actively seeking to destroy in the world, but there's another facet to sin that we need to understand. When God says that sin desires to have you, he's saying that sin not only wants to destroy us, but that it desires to rule in us. And by ruling in us, it will ultimately destroy us. It desires to rule in the place of God. This is why God tells Cain that he must rule over sin so that it doesn't rule over him. But how do we rule over sin? How do we not go the way of Cain? We know or maybe have heard a pastor say that Jesus has defeated sin on the cross. But how does that play out in our lives? Well, for one, it means that we are not alone in the fight. God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of us, prompting and guiding us towards righteousness, much like God does with Cain. Philippians 2.13 tells us that it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So in simple terms, we listen. We pay attention to conviction and repent quickly, not allowing sin to gain a foothold in our lives. These two things, when we feel the Spirit convict us or warn us of a potential pitfall, we listen and turn the other way. When we realize patterns of sin in our lives, we confess it and set up safeguards against it. When we do fall, we confess and repent quickly, limiting the damage sin can do. Basically for me, it means I spend time listening for God's voice of correction, then changing whatever he has asked me to change. We will sin, but we are not helpless against it. Jesus took away the penalty of our sins, but we still face the presence of sin in the here and now. Even though sin is still present, because of the Holy Spirit, we are not powerless against it.
Sin doesn't get the last word, and we are no longer bound to it. We are free in Christ, and part of the freedom means we are free to rule over sin. As you think through the role you have in ruling over sin, a final word to you from this chapter. Amidst this broken world, so quick to fall apart into violence and sin, remember how this chapter ends. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Sin has generational impact, and so does good. Cain's selfishness, his choice to let sin rule over him, his choice to build his own kingdom instead of God's, had generational impact. Sin is not just a personal thing. It's a corporate community thing. It won't just impact you. It spreads. If anyone says, well, my decisions are my decisions, and I'm the only one impacted by them, they're either lying or gravely mistaken. See, every time I let sin rule, every time I choose my own way instead of God's, the negative impacts of the decision pollute not only my own life, but my family, my community, humanity, and the world. Think about our globalized world today. Financial corruption from one company in one city can negatively affect markets all around the world. One untreated disease in a small village on the other side of the world can lead to worldwide pandemics. One political leader's decision for violence can result in refugee crises that span the globe. Let's take it closer to home. You likely carry the wounds of the poor decisions your parents made. And worse, the choices you and I make to go our own way will impact our kids and our communities. This is the way of Cain. This is the lineage of when humans go their own way. But there's good news. The good news is while sin has generational impact, so does good. Remember in chapter four, this picture of humanity devolving into cycles of brokenness and dehumanization, we end with the birth of Seth, the forefather of a different lineage. You see, Seth is the forefather of Noah, the forefather of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the forefathers of Moses, the forefather of David, who is the forefather of Jesus. This is a different lineage, one that seeks to do God's will, God's way, to see not our kingdoms, but his kingdom come, not our will, but his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like evil, good is not just personal. It is corporate and communal, and good, doing God's will, God's way, has a chain reaction impact in our world. Every decision you make for good, every obedient act of love, every creative effort for his sake will not only benefit you, it will put forth God's goodness to your kids, your family, your community, and this world. In the Bible, God says that while children will bear the results of the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, God's loving goodness will be lavished on a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. As I read these two passages in light of this contrast of Cain versus Seth, it presses me to remember that my decisions have implications for me and for those around me. I need to remember to choose God's way. Now, with this great yet challenging news, we come to the end of chapter four of Genesis and to the end of this study. After being immersed in the goodness of God's own world in chapters one and two, then seeing what happens when we go our own way in chapter three, this fourth chapter lays out for us two paths, the way of Cain or the way of Seth, the forerunner of Jesus. The Bible lays out these two paths over and over again throughout the story, but most clearly in God's words to the people of Israel. Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, 
to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, then you will live. I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. See, these words are not just for Israel, for those people long ago. No, this is our story, a story we experience moment by moment. Who will you choose to live for right now in this moment? And in every moment after, will you choose death or true life? Thankfully, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the power of his spirit, and through the love of the Father, we can walk confidently in the family and lineage of Jesus to choose his story to be our own. We have the power to turn away from what tempted Eve and Adam and, and ruined Cain, a life consumed by themselves and their false stories. Instead, we have the power to look to the one who tells us who we truly are, the one who gives us a picture of the world as it is and as it ought to be, and the one who truly deserves every ounce of our worship. This is our story. This is true life. Thanks again for joining us for this study. We hope you found this to be encouraging, enlightening, and, and life-giving. But most of all, we hope this journey through these first few chapters of the Bible has piqued your interest in God's Word and filled you with deeper appreciation and love for the God who made this world, made you, and is remaking all of this. Absolutely. Now, before you finish up tonight, be sure to process together what stuck out to you the most from these chapters, how your life may look different as a result, and then decide as a group what you'd like to study next. We hope you'll continue this journey deeper into His Word, into a life together with Him. Have a great week. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes. And go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week.